0: Okay, so as I started working through this chapter of the Confession on free will, I thought it would be helpful for us to define terms. Uh, At times we can assume that we have the same thing in mind when we use certain words. Uh, And defining our terms helps us to make sure everyone's on the same page when we use certain words. And they may be familiar words that we all sort of throw about or throw around commonly but it can be unhelpful if we have different definitions for the same word. That's important as we come to this chapter on free will. The doctrine of free will of man, the free will of man, has theological and practical implications, and the doctrine itself is very important. False views of this doctrine have corrupted entire systems of Christian truth. And historically, the doctrine of free will has always been a hot topic, so to speak, within the church and outside of the church. Um, in the fourth century, St. Augustine of Hippo, one of the church fathers, and Pelagius, a British monk, had one of the most important controversies in the history of the church. The and contra- the heart of the controversy and the debate was centered on the doctrine of original sin and specifically the question of the extent to which the will of the fallen man is free. In other words, he has free will, but how free is his free will? This controversy between Pelagius and Augustine came out of Augustine's famous prayer, and this is what he said. O God, grant what thou commandest, and command what thou dost desire. So Pelagius was okay with the first part of that prayer. It was the second part that he had serious issues with. Pelagius would not accept the idea that the divine gift, grace, is necessary to perform what God commands. So Augustine says, Lord, grant what thou commandest and command what thou desire. Grant what you, you have told us, and I'll, I'll get into this, you have commanded that we repent and believe, grant us to be able to repent and believe, essentially. So for Pelagius, his conception of this would say that responsibility always implies ability. Responsibility always implies ability. In other words, if God commands I do it, I must be able to do what he commands. If God commands I do it, I must be able to do it. If man has the moral responsibility to obey the law of God, he must also have the moral ability to obey the law of God, okay? Now, that was uh, one of the first controversies, not the first, but one of the first uh, huge controversies in the church historically. Now, let's travel through time around uh, 1,100 years later and stop at around 1525. During the time of the German Reformation in the 16th century, Martin Luther and Erasmus engaged in another huge controversy um, on merit and grace or faith and works. The issue is essentially this. To what degree is the human will enslaved by sin, and to what degree are we dependent upon grace for our liberation? To what degree degree is the human will enslaved by sin, and to what degree are we dependent upon grace for our liberation? That sounds very similar to Augustine and Pelagius, right? Yes, it does, and it, it is. Although Erasmus would deny that he was Pelagian, Luther, and all of Luther's strong and interesting personality, would see Erasmus and say, you are a Pelagian in Catholic clothing. Luther wasn't uh, short with words. When he wanted to (laughs) come at you, he did, and he didn't spare words to do it. Um, But Erasmus would disagree with that. And Martin Luther actually considered in this dialogue with Erasmus, his book, The Bondage of the Will, to be his most important book on this subject. In that book, Luther, responding to some of Erasmus's claims that man has a natural moral ability to obey the gospel. Erasmus proposed that all of God's commands to obey proved that we had the free will or moral ability to do so. Again, it sounds like Pelagius, who would deny that divine grace is necessary to perform what God commands. Here's a quote from um, Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will, page uh, 202. He says, Let all the free will in the world do all it can with all its strength. It will never give rise to a single instance of ability to avoid being hardened if God does not give the spirit or of meriting mercy if it is left to its own strength. Today, This controversy or debate is still taking place between Reformed Protestants or Calvinists and Arminians. Calvinists would articulate Luther or Augustine's position (coughs) and Arminians would articulate um, semi-Pelagian, the semi-Pelagian position. Arminianism is named after Jacob Arminius who is a 16th century Dutch theologian. A lot of the times when we uh, talk about these things we sort of throw uh, names out there and we Articulate them by saying you're a Calvinist and you're an Arminian, but these were were men (laughs) Who gave thought to these doctrines and we may disagree with their positions here or there? But it's not just sort of a banner that we wave these were real people who who had a Bible who were trying to work through these things Um, And so we have to remember that as well Uh, Arminians, or Jacob Arminius was an actual person. He was a Dutch theologian Uh, And their theological formulation of the doctrine of free will would articulate um, total, or not total, partial depravity. Augustine would articulate total depravity. Jacob Arminius would articulate partial depravity. Uh, Luther and Calvin would articulate total depravity. Um, Pelagians, semi Pelagians, and Armenians may articulate partial depravity. And it would emphasize the responsibility of man and salvation. Those who would hold to a semi-Pelagian or Armenian position would deny the, would not deny the sovereignty of God, but it's clear from their articulation that the sovereign will of God is, in some sense, subject to the will of the creature. And I'll sort of try and prove that as we move through this class. <clears throat> now. All of that was a brief and very brief historical overview of the doctrine of free will as it concerns man's moral ability within the church, this conversation that's been happening within the church. At the beginning uh, of of my class, I said it was important for us to define terms, but I still haven't done that, so let's do it now. But first, as as some of you have probably noticed, Um, And going through this sort of quick uh, historical overview of this conversation within the church, I neglected to mention um, one of the most important theologians to ever write on this topic. And who can guess who that theologian is? Anybody? Jonathan Jonathan Edwards, yes, you are good students. That man is Jonathan Edwards. He's a 16th century American theologian and Puritan. And he is considered by many to have written the greatest work on this subject. His book, Freedom of the Will, which is not an opposition to Luther's bondage of the will. He's not interacting with that and saying, well, free will and bondage of the will. It's, they would articulate the same position. Um, he, would st- he, he would say that, um, <clears throat> oh well, his, his book actually studies out the idea that God's grace for redeeming a damaged will of humanity Wait a minute, I lost my place, sorry. <clears throat> his book, Freedom of the Will, studies out the necessity of God's grace for, the, for redeeming, uh, the redeeming of the damaged will of humanity and argues that free will is an extension of and connected to the grace of God. And Edwards is, is brilliant, if you've read any of his Uh, Works he can be very technical and especially that book in some areas at least the areas. I've read it can be very technical But it's probably worth having in our bookshelves or our iPads as a reference because he really works well through this topic on the subject of free will Jonathan Edwards denies freedom or defines freedom and Liberty as is what he says the power opportunity or advantage that anyone has to do as he pleases in other words, he says, his being free from hindrance and the way of doing. Free from hindrance and the way of doing. That definition will be important as we work through this chapter of the confession on free will. I'm saying all of this for a reason. It, it has a purpose in this context. Again, the power of anyone to do as he pleases or as he wills, is how Edwards defines freedom or liberty. Contrary to liberty, he says, is a person's being hindered or unable to conduct as he will, or being necessitated or forced to do otherwise. So he says if they're forced to do against their will, then this stands in opposition to freedom or liberty. Free will, and you'll notice in his definition, He does not mention the sovereignty of God at all. Uh, He's not denying God's sovereignty, but free will is not opposed to or hindered by God's foreknowledge or foreordination. We do not have to define free will by whether or not God knows what we will do before we do it. That's not how we should define free will. God's foreknowledge does not have to be removed for men to have free will. Why? because free will is not utter unpredictability. Free will is not utter unpredictability. And so divine freedom, God's sovereign decree of will, and human freedom are not in conflict. On the other hand, it's only because our wills are made in the image of the freedom of God's supreme will that our wills are free. Human freedom is rooted and God's sovereign freedom. Our wills are controlled by our ethical disposition and moral nature, okay? And we'll again flesh some of that out. Okay, with all that being said, let's actually jump into chapter nine of the Confession. And let's see how it articulates this doctrine of free will. Sam Waldron in his commentary on this chapter of the confession says, free will is therefore not a kind of immutable faculty for making random decisions. Being tied to human nature, it exists in different states because human nature exists in different states. The very structure of the confession illustrates this truth. The first paragraph, as you see there, defines free will. Paragraphs two to five deal with the different states in which it exists. These move from the state of innocence, where it is marked by instability, to the state of glory, where it is marked by immutability. So this chapter essentially deals with the fourfold state of man, from his prelapse or prefall state to his state and glory. Thomas Boston, the 17th century Scottish Puritan, articulated those states by calling them the state of innocence, the state of nature, the state of grace, and the eternal state. And it's helped me to understand the fourfold state of man as innocence, guilt, grace, and glory. Innocence, guilt, grace, and glory. Man's state prior to the fall, man's state after the fall, Man's state after he's regenerated, and man's state and in glory. Innocence, guilt, grace, and glory. Okay, now we will actually read chapter, uh, paragraph one of the confession. Okay, so let me have someone read paragraph one for us. God is endowed, with natural liberty and power to act on
1: choices, so that it is neither forced nor inherently bound by nature
0: to be good or evil. Okay, so God is endowed. Uh, human will with the natural liberty and power to act on choices. I'm sorry, one sec, I think I have the wrong PowerPoint up. Okay. Okay, so this paragraph rightly starts with the word God. And it says, He has endowed human will with natural liberty. Uh, Endowed is not a word that we often use today, but it means to give a quality or characteristic. And what quality or property uh, did God endow man's will with? God endowed the will of man, or the will of man, or man, with the natural liberty and power to act on choices. R.C. Sproul says, Here the confession speaks of natural liberty, a liberty that is part and parcel of our nature as human beings. Man has the freedom to choose as he desires, regardless of what external circumstances may be present at the time. So let's look at Matthew 17, 12. Let me have someone read that for us, if you don't mind.
1: Also, the Son of Man is going
0: to suffer at their hands. Okay, thank you. So the Greek word, therefore, wished, they did whatever they wished, is used in the New Testament for want, will, desirous, or desire. So we do according to our desire. And then James 1.14, if someone wouldn't mind reading that for us.
1: But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust.
0: Okay, in other words, nobody can say, which we've heard before, the devil made me do it. Right? We are held responsible because we um, act according to our greatest desire. And we talked about this in our past, our past <laughs> class. The devil may tempt and we may give in to sinful desires, But each person chooses to sin because that is exactly what he or she desires to do, right? We act out of our own uh, desire. Man freely chooses sin because that is what he wants, and so mankind is responsible for their choices, whether good or evil. So the will of man is not forced or coerced to choose good or evil against his own willing. If the will were forced, it would not be at liberty or have power to act upon choice. Adam and Eve were not forced to obey or disobey God's special command in the garden. Rather, Adam and Eve freely chose to disobey. The disobedience was their choice and they chose based on their desire. So this paragraph ends by stating that men are neither force nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. R.C. Sproul again notes here, the confession distances itself from every form of moral determinism which would subject human choices to fixed mechanical or physical choices or fate. In other words, reformed theology rejects fatalism and any determinism based on forces of nature. In other words, we are not coerced or forced by natural causes or by our environment either to do good or evil. Determinism, I'm going to define that for us, uh, which is often discussed around this topic of free will, would say that every event, decision or action is causally determined by an unbroken chain of prior events. So. Here's my visual aid for that. So if you think about dominoes being set up, imagine a line of of dominoes as far as the eye can see. And a a line of dominoes that takes, I don't know, years to fall over. You know, you push it and it goes Imagine a line of dominoes that takes years to fall over. Essentially, uh, in this understanding, you are just a domino, there's a domino here, and a line of dominoes. And as those events uh, happen, they happen upon you, which causes you to act in line with those prior events. It's determinism. And determinism is related to fatalism. Um, Calvinists are sometimes falsely accused of being fatalists. Uh, Fatalism is the belief that what will be will be. I was just having a conversation with someone a couple weeks ago um, at our Tuesday night study, and I was articulating the Calvinistic view of predestination and um, this person had a different view and we had a great conversation, it was, it was fine, we didn't start fighting or nothing like that. It was a great conversation. Um, but she said to me, um, well doesn't that just sort of leave you to say, well, it doesn't matter. You know, Whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen. And what she is articulating is fatalism. Ultimately, that's what she, um, I shouldn't say she, this person was uh, communicating about the Calvinistic position. Okay? Um, Yeah, Tuesday nights get real. Um, So we would affirm, uh, or uh, fatalism may sometimes be confused with uh, predestination. And I think that's maybe what was happening there. We would affirm the Bible does teach predestination, but it's never to the exclusion of free will. And so the Bible does not affirm fatalism. Again, God's sovereignty is not mutually exclusive to free will. And the confession affirms that biblical truth. Okay, So let's jump down to paragraph two. And again, I mentioned this at the beginning of the class. If you have questions, which I hope you do, please feel free to write them down, and we'll have a time towards the end of the class to interact with those questions, okay? Okay, let's jump down to paragraph two. Let me have someone read that for us.
1: Man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet it was mutable so that he might fall from
0: it. Okay, thank you. So it's a slightly different uh, translation. Um, Humanity in his state of innocence had freedom and power to will and to do what was good and well-pleasing to God. Yet this condition was unstable so that humanity could fall from it. So remember the first paragraph find free will and paragraphs two to five deal with the different states in which it exists. This paragraph addresses man in his state of innocency, or innocence, the time before the fall, before our first parents became guilty and corrupt as a result of their disobedience. So prior to the fall, in the state of innocency, man had freedom and power to will and to do what was good and well-pleasing to God. If you remember, What the Confession articulated in chapter 4 of Confession, when I talked through that that, uh, chapter, in paragraph 2 it says that they, Adam and Eve, had the law of God written on their hearts and the power to fulfill it. They had the freedom and ability to do good and actually please God. But, as this paragraph says, this condition was unstable, right? That so that humanity could fall from it. It was unstable so that humanity could fall from it. They were created, Adam and Eve, able to sin and able not to sin. They were created mutable or corruptible or able to change their state. The Bible doesn't hide from the reality that man was made upright, and yet man was able to sin, and indeed, he actually did sin. Ecclesiastes, uh, Seven twenty-nine says, "Behold, I found only this: that God made men upright, but they sought out many devices. Upright there means straight or level, pleasing or righteous. And yet we know that Adam and Eve still sinned. Let's read Genesis three six. Let me have someone read that for us. When the
1: woman saw that the tree was good for food." and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate.
0: Okay, so do you think Eve is choosing according to her greatest desire here? And she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was desirable to make one wise, and she took of it and she ate. Eve chose according to her strongest inclination, right? Adam and Eve were in a wonderful state, in the state of innocency, but this state was a trial period where disobedience was possible. They were mutable and under the penalty of death. When we get to paragraph five, we'll see that in the state of glory, that change or mutability is not possible. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and I like the way the uh, KJV lays this out. It says, so when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. We will put on incorruptibility, incorruption, not mutability, not corruptibility, not a, uh, a, a state of innocence uh, mutability, but we will put on incorruptibility. So that state of glory is not based upon our perfect obedience, uh, but it's based on Christ's perfect obedience. The terms of the covenant of grace are unconditional because Christ is our surety. And since he purchased the eternal inheritance for us, The state of glory is not a mutable state, a state that's able to change. So the state of glory is better than the state of innocence. Okay, we're not going back to the garden in a state of innocence, corruptibility, we're going to a state of incorruptibility, the state of glory, okay? All right, let's jump down to paragraph, write your questions down. Write them down, I know you got them. <laughs> write them down and we'll interact towards the end. Let's jump down to paragraph three. And I'm gonna say this, these, it's, it's very helpful in the way the confession articulates these doctrines, it's put together the way it's put together for a reason. I mentioned in my last class that those first seven chapters become the foundation on which the rest of the confession is built. So we have to understand, or at least be able to grapple with uh, the things in those first seven chapters to really start to understand and work through what follows after, right? The the decrees of God, uh, God's sovereignty, the word of God, um, God's uh, creation, providence, the fall of man and mankind, all of those things are necessary, and as we walk through those things, they were necessary to better understand some of these later, later doctrines. And again, I'm, I'm grappling with, I'm working through these things along with you, um, but I think uh, the Confession has done a great job in articulating these doctrines for us to better understand understand them. Okay, that's just a side note. Uh, paragraph three, let me have someone read paragraph three for us. Humanity by falling into a state of
1: sin has completely lost all ability to choose any, natu- uh, any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. Thus, people in their natural state are absolutely opposed to spiritual good and dead in sin, so that they cannot convert
0: themselves by their own strength or prepare themselves for conversion. Okay. Yes. <clears throat> so that they cannot convert themselves by their own strength or even prepare themselves for conversion. So this paragraph transitions to man in a state of guilt, or man in a state where he is unable to not sin. He's unable to not sin. That possible loss of the state of innocency became a reality when mankind fell into a state of sin. In their state of sin, Adam and Eve became wholly defiled and all the faculties and parts of soul and body, which this paragraph articulates. And that same corruption was conveyed to all mankind by ordinary generation. We saw that in chapter six, paragraph two. And so they in their posterity, as it says in this paragraph, completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. Let me have someone read Romans 8 7 for us. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. Okay. So it's pretty clear here that the natural man without the spirit can neither save himself nor prepare himself for salvation. He's not even able to subject himself to the law of God. He's not able to do so. And so our definition of free will has to be qualified, right? Notice the words completely in, in this paragraph, completely and all. They, have, they completely lost all ability. But the question is, what ability was completely lost? It was the ability to will to do what? Any spiritual good. Man's fall radically changed mankind's state. Mankind and the state of sin can no longer will to do any spiritual good whatsoever. The soul's faculties were entirely corrupted And this included the nature of man and his will. The loss of ability to will to do spiritual good is specifically related to the spiritual good that is accompanying salvation. So the confession isn't denying that man can do some good in general, but to do spiritual good that leads to salvation, he cannot do. So this paragraph is affirming both total depravity and total inability by articulating this. Total depravity addresses every faculty or ability of man. By faculties, I mean body, mind, will, um, emotions. Uh, In other words, the whole person. And then total inability means that man is unable to will any spiritual good. Now, I know that may sound extreme, but if we let the biblical evidence speaks to this, it becomes more clear. Okay, so let's see if we can try and get some, some clarity here. One, the scripture says that men in their natural condition are enslaved, dead, and blind. Let me have someone read John eight thirty four and then Ephesians two one. Okay, thank you. Two, the scripture says that man has lost all ability to please God. Let's read Romans 8 7 again.
1: Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so.
0: Okay, thank you. Three, no man ever wills to come to God apart from God, drawing him. John six forty-four
1: No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise
0: him up on the last day. Thank you. For repentance and faith are both a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Okay, there are areas in the Bible that are gray that it's a little, diff- a little more difficult to, to work through and there are areas in the Bible that I believe are very clear. This doesn't take a lot of uh, hermeneutical legwork to see that you're saved through grace, you're saved through faith and it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no man can boast. You see why we have to reject the semi-Pelagian and Armenian conception of moral ability and free will. Now I want to get back to something I said towards the beginning of the class and quoting Pelagius. He would say that responsibility always implies ability. Another way of saying that is if God commands men to repent, believe, and come to Christ, they must be able to do so. This is an area where we have that tension. Apart from the fact that I think the Bible uh, contradicts that teaching, it confuses natural or physical ability with moral or spiritual ability. It's not because of any limitation inherent or built into man's humanity that he cannot believe. It's not a physical handicap or problem. It's a moral problem. What do I mean? It would be wrong for me to command my three-year-old son, Caden, to jump over a 50-foot wall. My son doesn't have the physical ability to do what I command but that's not what's happening when God commands the sinner to repent man's inability to repent is not a metaphysical issue it's a moral issue men do not repent because they are so hardened in their hatred of God that they cannot repent no one is really saying I really 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 want to repent and believe but God just won't let me As if they're running up against some uh, glass of God's hindering them from repenting. And they're beating on it saying, I want to repent, I want to repent. That's not happening. That's never happened. It does not happen. And I think scriptural evidence proves that. Again, the problem is not a metaphysical problem. The problem is a moral problem. God did not create men and then bind them with some restriction that keeps them from being able to repent and believe. Men's wills are restrained by their own sinful nature. The problem is not the will. It is the nature of the man. Because it's not man's, it's not man's nature to do a thing, he is not free to do the thing. And the natural man is what? Dead in sin. He's a spiritual Lazarus. He cannot awaken himself. Okay, Ephesians 2 1 3. Let me have someone read that for us.
1: And you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by
0: nature children of wrath, even as the rest. It's another very plain passage that articulates man's natural condition. Notice the natural man lives of his own free agency according to the passions of his flesh, or his sinful desires. His desires are the guiding inclinations of his will. He is a slave to his natural, his sinful nature. Because this is true, the natural man cannot convert themselves by their own strength or prepare themselves for conversion. Because mankind is completely opposed to spiritual good for salvation, and since he is dead in sin, he cannot change his nature so that he desires salvation, neither can he prepare himself for salvation. This is why the next chapter of the confession deals with the effectual calling. Remember, I said it was laid out the way it is for a reason. When the Holy Spirit gives you the grace of regeneration, the purpose is to bring you to Christ. But God doesn't give you the ability to come to, but God doesn't just give you the ability to come to Christ, but he also draws you to himself. God does the drawing and the saving. Okay, paragraph four. Let me have someone read that for us.
1: When God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace, He frees them from their natural bondage to sin, and by His grace alone, enables them to do freely what is spiritually good. Yet, because of their remaining corruption, they do not perfectly nor exclusively will what is good, but also will.
0: Okay, thank you. Okay, now transitioning from the state of sin or guilt to the state of grace. This paragraph starts by saying, God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace. And we see this clearly from Colossians 1 3. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. It's a change of state from unable to not sin to able to sin to not sin. And this miraculous work happens only by God's effectual calling. It cannot and will not happen unless God initiates, sustains, and perfects it. Notice the contrast. The last paragraph says men lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. And this paragraph says that God, by his grace, alone enables them to will and to do freely what is spiritually good All Right, so there's a there's a contrast there men's natural state is changed and if it's truly a work of god it's changed permanently only if it is a work of the spirit will man's state be truly changed philippians two twelve to 13 so then my beloved just as you have always obeyed uh, not, as in, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If it's not God at work in you, then it's just behavior modification. It's just, uh, it's just you changing uh, and becoming a, a, a better civil citizen. Can
1: you say that Yes: I'm Still in the midst of all weather, but that I, want, really
0: the one I know. Misses. OK, if it's not God, it's just behavior modification. Okay. Right <coughs> It must be God doing the work. The problem is <coughs> sorry, <coughs> excuse me The problem is men that have good behavior still perish. Mm-hmm. Men that have good behavior still perish. Why? Because God's holy nature, and therefore his holy standard, is not compromised. He requires perfection. The commands of the law cannot be changed, and the conditions of salvation must still be kept. This happens by God's grace, and it only happens when we have been given a new heart and a renewed nature. John Owen articulates Um, what happens in regeneration in this way. Um, He says, in explaining, and Joe Beakey sort of articulates John Owen's thoughts on this, in explaining the faculties of the soul on which regeneration works, Owen says, the leading uh, conducting faculty of the soul is the mind or understanding. This leading faculty is not replaced, but renewed, which enables us to know God savingly. Not replaced, but renewed. Then the Spirit works on the will. The will is so acted upon immediately by the Spirit that its inclination is determined. The will is not left remaining undetermined, but the Spirit determines it, and unto the acts of faith and obedience. The Spirit does not leave men to the undetermined liberty of their wills at the same time, He does this without the least impeachment of its liberty or freedom. In other words, God doesn't remove the will as if the will is the issue. In our conversation about God's sovereign, effective grace, man's state, nature, inclinations, and character all change, and that affects or informs the will. Jonathan Edwards said that the will is the mind choosing. Though there is a distinction between the mind and the will, the two are inseparable in action. In regeneration, God changes the man's nature and something miraculous happens upon the will, which in turn enables the man to choose and do freely what is spiritually good. Stephen Charnock, a 16th century English Puritan, articulated a definition of regeneration that is helpful he says that regeneration is a universal change of the whole man it is a new creature not only a new power or faculty this extends to every part it is as large in renewing as sin is in defacing so good the whole man it is a renewal again of the whole person Okay, <clears throat> I'm not gonna be able to get to five, but I'll talk about it a little bit. Um, okay, but at the last sentence of this uh, paragraph says the reality is that the remaining corruption, uh, which, we'll, uh, which, which we talked about in chapter six, paragraph five, still exists in our nature, and that affects our desires and choices. <clears throat> Never mind. Um, all believers know well the struggle uh, yes this, this struggle of sin um, Paul in Romans 7 uh, 18 to 23 sort of articulates this, this struggle with sin um, this, this wretched man that I am who can deliver, deliver me from this body of sin I don't think Paul is writing of himself when he was unconverted I think he's writing of himself in now in present tense then, with this struggle with sin and all of us know that struggle with sin yes we are in a state of grace and our wills are being uh, sanctified. We are being sanctified to become what we are becoming. Uh, In the end, we will be fully what we are becoming. We are being sanctified into a state of glory. And Paul was uh, familiar with this as he articulated in Romans 7. But again, our encouragement is that um, when we get to the state of glory, uh, it's not a returning to corruptibility it's going to a place of incorruptibility in which there is much hope and encouragement. And that's pretty much what, chapter, what paragraph five says. It's only a sentence, you can read it. Um, only in the state of glory is the will made perfectly and unchangeably free towards good alone. We will be made able to fully and freely obey the Lord without any hindrance of sin. Can you imagine that? Imagine not struggling with your own heart to obey the Lord and to do good. I can't imagine that, but glory be to God, it is a reality, and every elect person will be there with the Lord, uh, fully obeying, uh, joyfully, freely, um, in a state of glory. So praise the Lord for that. Okay, a couple of questions.